she went to the well for water and met a stranger who already knew her. Folks, the Gospel of John is not easy to outline, even for scholars who have a comprehensive knowledge of the Gospel. John approaches the birth and life of Jesus differently than Mark and Matthew and Luke. Oh, he agrees with their historical narratives. He would not find any difference there. But he looks through theological lens always. They speak of the angels coming to Mary and Joseph and the story of the birth of Jesus in that way. He simply looks at that narrative and says, here's what's happening. The word became flesh. John also includes miracles, events, and conversations not recorded by the other Gospels. I believe he was writing his Gospel last. He outlived all the other apostles. He knew what had been written by Matthew, by Mark, and Luke. So why does John record this conversation with a Samaritan woman? The other writers admitted this. Why did he record this? We don't even know her name. This section begins in John 2.23. We looked at this when we came to, to look at the conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus. These are the verses that introduce the passage that deals with the conversation with Nicodemus. Look at, on your scripture sheet, look at John 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for himself knew what was in man. Those verses don't close out the what had happened before, the cleansing of the temple. They're there to introduce Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. He didn't need, Nicodemus was coming to him to, to have a conversation about who he was. What was, what, what, who was. what was Jesus doing? It was as if Jesus already knew Nicodemus. He knew exactly what Nicodemus needed. Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. They not only introduce the story of Nicodemus, they introduce the story of the woman at the well. You can, you can imagine that many people, because of the signs he did, they wanted to be a part of what Jesus was doing. They wanted to Jesus to join them and be a part of what they were doing. But he remained aloof from them. And we read, he himself knew what was in man. He didn't need someone to tell him who Nicodemus was. He didn't need anybody to tell him who the woman at the well was. He knew all about them. What does the woman at the well say in verse 29 in, in John 4 in our text this morning? Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So John 3 and 4 go together. They're introduced there at the end of chapter 2. So with that literary context, let me add one other helpful 
principle. And this is when you're studying any historical narrative in Scripture. We have a tendency when we read stories in the Old or New Testament to do, to do what I call Sunday schoolizing. We ask as if we, we, look, we, we speak and we think about it as if it took place in church, as it took place in Sunday school. And we need to move to understand the context. We need to move those narratives into our daily lives because that's where it happened in, these, in, in, in the lives of these people. This conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, where did it take place? It took place at a well outside of Sychar where people came to get their water daily. This was an everyday place where everyday people came to get their daily water and have everyday conversations. You can think about it this way. This is like a conversation that you have with someone at Kroger's when you're shopping. This is like a conversation that you have with someone out in the Kroger parking lot or at the post office when you're mailing a letter. That's where this took place. There's more context that we can call a geographical and political context. Jesus had left Jerusalem, had left Passover. He was going back to northern Israel. He was going back to Galilee. The straightest route to Galilee from Jerusalem, from Judea, went through Samaria. And to understand this conversation, you must know something about the history of Samaria. Right after the reign of Solomon, when Israel was at its apex in its influence in that part of the world, the ten northern tribes separated from the two southern tribes of Israel. They they, they, they separated themselves from Judea, from Jerusalem. And they did it over taxes. They went to the king and they said, if you lower the taxes, we'll remain if you don't. And the king refused to lower the taxes. They separated. Had a different king, had a different capital. Well, in 721 B.C., this all has a purpose, so hang with me. The Assyrians attacked from the north and conquered the northern kingdom. It was the Assyrians' habit with any nation they conquered to take the most prominent people of that nation out, distribute them in Babylon, Assyria, and other nations, and send in their own Assyrian people. And so they took 30,000 people at one time. Think about that. 30,000 people, prominent people, they removed from the northern kingdom and sent in substitutes. They sent in Assyrians. Well, these Assyrians intermarried. And the people in the southern kingdom began to look at those ten northern tribes as half-breeds. Half-breeds in their race, half-breeds in their religion. Over the centuries... A real animosity emerged between the two peoples, between the Samaritans and the Jews. Look at, in our text this morning, look at John 4, 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Well, now we know why they didn't have dealings with them, but let's make it very plain. 
they would have business. People in Judea, Jews in Judea would do business with maybe farmers in Samaria. But personal exchange and personal contact, that was forbidden uh, because the Samaritans were unclean. Notice the woman did not say to Jesus, you are a Jew, what are you doing here? She asked him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? You see, she had seen many Jews. It wasn't unusual to see a Jew passing through Samaria going north. There was another route. The Jews that wanted to avoid all contact would go east out of Jerusalem and Judea, cross the Jordan River, go north up to Galilee, and then cross back over. And they would avoid Samaria altogether. But that route through Samaria was much easier, mileage-wise. And so it was faster. And so she, when she went to the well, it was very common to see a Jew passing through, going to Galilee, or going from Galilee to Jerusalem. But she asked, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She had never had a Jew, when she went to the well, ask her for a drink. Because if she handled the cup and she gave the water, it would make the cup unclean. The Samaritans were unclean. In the Jewish religious rites, in their religious laws, he would be drinking from an unclean cup, So they would do business with each other. But the Jew would never enter a Samaritan house and dine with them, for then he would be made unclean. So with all those pieces of context, and you can understand, with all those pieces of context, let's look at the details of this conversation. Jesus is tired from his journey from Jerusalem. I remember when I... When I was a, a young junior high school or so, and I read a passage like that, maybe this passage, and I would think, he's a son of God. He should never be tired. He can't be tired. But remember, the son of God became flesh. He became truly man. He just wasn't an apparition. He became truly man. In this passage we read that, and that, that meant that he needed food to eat. He needed water to drink. In this passage we read that he had sent the disciples into Sychar to get food. He was hungry. So we read he was tired, he was hungry, and he was thirsty, asked for a drink. I was speaking about this one time. Um, in a in a church about his humanity and just trying to bring it home is extremely important to understand the humanity of Christ. And I made the statement. I said he was tired, he would sweat, and he would have body odor just like we do. And after the service, this woman came up to me. This lady came up to me, and she's greatly agitated. She was an older lady. She said, you should not have said that about my Jesus. Like, he didn't sweat, and he didn't have body odor, but he did. And he was tired. 
Now, in the conversation that he had with Nicodemus, Nicodemus sought out Jesus, came to him at night, remember? Didn't want his friends from the Sanhedrin to see him. And Nicodemus actually began the conversation. We know you're a man from God. But here, this lady does not begin the conversation. Jesus said, would you draw a cup of water for me? This was a deep well. We read in verse 11, he had no way of drawing water. Now she could have said, I'll be glad to draw you a cup of water. You're tired from your journey. As a Samaritan woman accustomed to being shunned by Jews, she answers, rather answers his request with cynicism. You're a Jew. Why would you ask me for a drink. I'm a Samaritan. She'd been coming to that well all of her life. This had never happened. She had never had a Jewish man or a Jewish woman say, would you bring me a cup of water? I mean, her question may have even had a sharper edge. You're a Jew? What makes you think I would draw you a cup of water? Jesus answers her cynicism with another sentence she had never heard. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he he would have given you living water. Now, Jesus, this this conversation has a great parallel with Nicodemus. Like Nicodemus, she interprets Jesus' words on a physical level. When Jesus said to Nicodemus, if you would see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Now, how did Nicodemus understand it? He said, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It was completely on a physical level. The woman did the same thing. She said, you have no way of drawing water. This well is deep. Where will you get this living water? No, she didn't let up. She went on. Our patriarch, Jacob, gave us this well. Now, this was Jacob's well. He was one that dug it. People had been coming to this well for 2,000 years. This, this was a famous place. And she said, this, Jacob made this will. Are you greater than Jacob? And Jesus' answer was, yes, I am. He said, you drink the water from Jacob's well, you'll be thirsty again. You'll be back here tomorrow. You drink the water I'll give you. And it will quench your thirst. You will never thirst. Jesus hit a nerve with this particular woman. And she wants the water. Sir, give me this water. But then Jesus presses. Listen, pay attention to this. This is really important. He knows her. That's why he's saying what he said. That's why the conversation is going in this direction. Jesus presses against her sensitive nerve once more with a peculiar command out of nowhere. Think about this. 
He says, when she says, give me the water, he says, well, go call your husband and come here. She, in effect, tries to hide from his crying. She said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, lady, I know you. You are technically correct in saying you have no husbands. You've had five husbands. And the man you're with now, you're living with outside of marriage. You're not married to him. This slammed into her life. She was stunned, astounded. Jesus had been a complete stranger to her. But he obviously knew everything about her. The part of her life he had chosen to reveal was a touchy subject, and she wanted to hide. Now, what had happened to her? Why had she been married five times? Her previous husbands may have died. Her previous husbands may have left her, given her a bill of divorce. Maybe she divorced them. She may have been promiscuous. That she was living with a man outside of marriage supports that view. But no matter. Let's add one more thing. She came to the well at noon in the heat of the day. This was unusual. The women of the village, when they came, they usually came together. A group of women coming together to talk, to make their daily trip to the well. And they did it in the cool of the morning. Or the cougar of the evening. She came in the sixth hour. That would have been at noon, counting from six o'clock in the morning. And she came alone. Maybe she had been ostracized by the other men, by the other women. Whatever the details of her life, whatever caused five marriages and five husbands, her life had been a constant change and upheaval. A change in upheaval in the most basic relationships that men and women have as husband and wife. Five husbands and now another intimate relationship outside of marriage. Just constant change. This is why, exactly why, Jesus said, I have water that will satisfy. Lady, you have lived your life in constant thirst. Metaphorically, you keep going from well to well looking for contentment, looking for satisfaction, and you've not found it. That's what he was saying to her, and that's why he said it. Well, she tries to hide from this very sharp probe. I mean, what's he going to say next? She tries to hide by asking him a theological question. It's really funny, and I came to this this week. I had to laugh. I've had this happen so many times. Someone will discover I'm a minister. Maybe I'm on a plane, maybe on a golf course, where they'll discover I'm a minister. And immediately, they do two things. Immediately, they begin thinking back in their conversation. What have I just said? You know. And then, and then to keep the conversation going, they will ask some kind of irrelevant question, a religious question. Well, let's talk about culture in the church. Or 
Let's talk about, you're a Presbyterian, let's talk about predestination. Or let's talk about why did, did Adam have a navel? They, there's, there's several things they don't want to talk about. They don't want to talk about Jesus. I've never had anyone walk up to me in that kind of setting and say, tell me about Jesus. They don't want to talk about Jesus. They don't want to talk about sin. And they don't want to talk about salvation. And so this woman says, hey, I perceive you're a prophet. You know all about me. I'm going to ask you a theological question. Our fathers say we should worship here Gerasim in the, in the temple that they built in Samaria, in the country of Samaria, so that the people wouldn't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. This was the leading question between Jews and Samaritans in that day. Where should we worship? In the temple at Jerusalem or the temple that has been built in the country of Samaria? Jesus, we're not going into detail with this. Jesus answers her question quite accurately. But he closes by bringing her back to the issue at hand. He says, the time is coming and now is here. Mark that, circle it. It's here now. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Jesus closes with that. The woman then makes her own theological statement. This is, this is beautiful. I know the Messiah is coming. Now remember Jesus, it says, the time is coming and is now here, right now. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, the woman says, I know the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, mark this, he will do what? He will tell us all things. He will tell us where we should worship. Mark those words. That's exactly what Jesus had been doing. He had been telling her all about her life, telling her so. Answering those questions. Then Jesus clarifies what he, that to which he had alluded earlier. He says, you say the Messiah is coming? He's already here. I'm the one. I am he. Look at it. I who speak to you am he. At this point, we've all experienced this in having an intense conversation. And suddenly the children walk in or some friends drop by. Here come the disciples back from town. And Jesus goes off on a conversation with the disciples. We're not going to go into that today. I'm going to look at that next week. And you don't want to miss it. It's really important. But right now, I want to follow the woman. She is so stunned and astounded. Here come the disciples. She says, I'm out of here. But she's so stunned and so astounded. You read it there in the passage. John was there. He saw it. She leaves her water jar. She'd come to get water. She goes back without water. She hastens back to town. And, and what does she do? Does she go home to her house and sit quietly and say, that sure was strange. That was an incredible conversation. What'd she do? She said to all of her neighbors, to all of her friends, to anyone listen, 
Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they went out to see Jesus. And they were so impressed. They begged him to stay and he stayed with them. A Jew stayed with them for two days. We read that many believed. I want us to come away from this scene, from God's word, with two truths. That Jesus has the water that satisfies and brings contentment. Look at, look at John 7.37 on your scripture sheet. On the last day of the feast, this was the next time Jesus was in Jerusalem, several chapters later. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out and shouted, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The next verse, after that, John comments that Jesus was speaking about the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus say to the lady right after they met? Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is, that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you that water. What does he say? If you knew the grace of God, the goodness of God, what God's about, if you knew the salvation of God, and you knew to whom you were speaking, that was essential. He was saying, you get this living water through believing in me. Remember the last of this conversation when she speaks about coming, the coming of the Messiah? She says, I am he. That's huge. I've mentioned this so many times, but it is crucial to understand this in our day, in our place. The theological liberals in all of our denominations, name the denomination, the theological liberals in the mainline denominations, consistently and constantly, they've done this for the last hundred years, deny the deity of Jesus. They deny the messiahship of Christ. They deny the incarnation. We're modern. We, we can't believe fairy tales like this. And they will make the argument, Jesus never claimed to be messiah. If you're, if you're one of the ones that are going to graduate this year from high school, I promise you in college next year, you're going to hear, if in, 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 in a more liberal world, in a more, in the more liberal churches, you're going to hear, Jesus never claimed to be God. They'll say he was a great teacher, but he didn't claim to be God. He did not claim to be the Messiah. And you look at me right now, some of you are saying, well, what do they do with this passage? Exactly. Exactly. If Matthew and John were here this morning, and we said, all right, you guys were there. You guys were there. 
Jesus, you know, Jesus really didn't claim Matthew and John. They, he didn't claim to be the Messiah. He didn't claim deity. You know what they would have said to us? Each of them would have said, we know two things about you, if that's what you think. You've never read our Gospels. And you don't know the Jesus we knew. If you're not a Christian this morning, or if you are a Christian, and you've had doubts, been confused on this issue, know this. Jesus has stood before you this morning in the Gospel of John. This is why John wrote it. John wrote his Gospel so that you might believe he was a son of God. That's what he said over and over again. Jesus has stood before you through his word and said to you, what he said to the Samaritan woman. I am he. I am the Messiah. People, that's important. He stood there. I am he. He didn't say, let me tell you about God. He said, I am he. This is not John Sartell's testimony. This is testimony of Jesus himself. You're free this morning to say, well, Jesus, I don't believe you. You can call him a liar. You can call him a fraud. You can't say he did not claim to be Messiah. You cannot say he didn't claim deity. It's right there before you. The second truth in this passage is based on the first truth. Because he's Messiah, because he's deity, he has the living water that satisfies. Jesus was saying to the woman who's come to the well to get water, there's another well you can drink from. It's a well filled with living water that will satisfy. It will take away the thirst that's been driving you all of your life. You keep going from well to well looking for contentment, looking for satisfaction, looking for water that will quench your thirst. Maybe you're thinking... What's that have to do with me? I'm not the woman at the well. I haven't had five husbands or five wives. <clears throat> I'm a Christian. If you had asked me coming in this morning if I believe Jesus was Messiah, I would have said yes. Yes, I believe he's the son of God. But you know what? Every single person in this room, including your minister, we get away from that living water. We get away from that well. I'm telling you this morning, if you're not a Christian, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. I'm saying to the Christians, to myself in this room, all of us know this. We get away from that well and we start looking at the world to bring satisfaction. Look at Jeremiah 2.13 and then we're done. 
Jeremiah 2, this is important. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What's he saying? They had the water from which they would never thirst again. Living water that would satisfy, that would bring contentment. But they've left it. And they've gone back over to these wells to drink the water that will never satisfy. It might be the well of fame. It might be the well of wanting to be popular, of being a great athlete, of having wealth, of having success, or having that relationship. Finding a husband or a wife. When I get married, I'll be satisfied. When I get this much money, I'll be satisfied. That's why we prayed the prayer that we prayed this morning. We were confessing that about our lives. Go back and look at it. Oh, Father, you made us body and soul, physical and spiritual. We've been inclined to seek meaning and pleasure only in the physical. We have fed the appetites of our bodies as if we, that would satisfy and feed our souls. We have ignored the feast you have prepared for us in your word and prayer and worship and the holy food of Christ's table. We have not cared for our souls that our souls are malnourished. Oh, Father, give us, forgive us for ignoring the bounty you have provided. Give us a desire for the food that brings true strength to our lives. Give us a holy hunger for the taste of Christ and his word. Give us a thirst for the living water of your spirit. Listen, I can't. I can remember when I was little. All this, I thought about this all week long. You know, when I was little, if I could just have that bow and arrow, I'd be satisfied the rest of my life. You know, if I just had that rifle, a single bolt twenty-two rifle, not an AK-47 or whatever, just the simplest bow, I'll be satisfied the rest of my life. You know what? It never satisfied me. There was always something else and something else and something else. I'll tell you this morning, if you're not a Christian, there's nothing that satisfies like Jesus. There's nothing. And you know what? This week, I tried to go to those other wells to get satisfaction. Now, there's nothing wrong with those other wells. They may not be bad wells. God gave them to have, for us to have, to enrich our lives. But they don't satisfy. They don't bring commitment. Parents, what well are you telling your children to drink from? The well of popularity. The well of being a great athlete. Those are good things. But they're not Jesus. And they'll never satisfy. I had to ask myself this week in preparation. It's the last thing I wrote down. I wrote it by hand, not typed out. John, what are you saying to your children and your grandchildren? Are you telling them?
There's only one well that satisfies.